A few weeks ago, I got a phone call, someone asking me about the book of Ecclesiastes. Why is it even in the Bible? I think that, I don't know if that was the question or not, but it, if you read it, it is so seemingly negative, you look at it and all Solomon seems to say is everything's vanity, it's useless. That's the way life is. And I said, well, well, we'll have to go through that. I'll have to do a study on Ecclesiastes. And I thought, I'll be real smart, and I'll look back and see where I preached through Ecclesiastes before, and I've never preached a message from the book of Ecclesiastes. And after getting into it in this first chapter, I understand why. It is very difficult, but I've decided to try to present a series of messages called Life Under the Sun. I don't know if we will preach from Ecclesiastes every Sunday. It may take two or three weeks to get the next message ready, so we'll see what happens. But we're going to talk about life under the sun because that's what Solomon talks about. I'm going to ask you to stand if you found the book of Ecclesiastes. We're just going to read the first three verses of the first chapter, and we're going to introduce this study. Now, I always have a problem with introductory messages because they seemed labored to me, so you bear with me as we try to share this this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? As we begin this study in this book of Ecclesiastes, the very first thing we need to note is the viewpoint of the author of this book. Of course, we know, and we're going to talk about him in a few minutes, we know that the writer of this book was Solomon. Solomon was David's son. Solomon was king in Israel. And there's a lot of things we know about Solomon. I'm not going to get into them right now. We'll look at them in just a few moments. But in this book, he talks about life, and he looks at life under the sun. Now, what's he talking about when he talks about life under the sun? He's talking about life from a purely human perspective. He's seeing it as so many people in this world today view life separate, totally apart from God, totally apart from any thought of heaven and hell and eternity. They're just viewing, you know, it's sort of like, well, I was born, I'll live, and I'll die. And I'll not give thought to God, I'll not give thought to living on into eternity. I'm not going to consider I have a spirit. I'm just looking at life from the human flesh. And as I've said before, I think that's how most of the world views life today. I shared with the Sunday school class my opinion, and it is my opinion, and you can do with my opinion what you want. But I think what we're seeing today, you know, life doesn't seem to have the value today that it once had. And when you teach children that they came from nothing and they're going to nothing, that they're just the result of some cosmic accident, that there's no God, no heaven, no hell, no eternity, and then you solidify that in their minds by killing unborn babies, you've got to expect things like we're seeing today happening in our society. And that's the way so many people, again, are looking at life. It's just under the sun. See, life under the sun ignores the fact that there's something and someone above the sun. We walk on this earth and we think because 
So far as we know, and I believe we are the only planet with any life on it, we think we are exceptional. We think we're so intelligent, and yet compared to God, our intelligence is just very, very small. I really believe this would be a great book for teenagers and young adults to study. I think they need to understand what the Word of God is saying here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now we know, we've already seen, we've already talked about this in weeks gone by, that when man sinned against God, he broke his fellowship with God. When sin entered into God's crowning creation of mankind, it created a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of man. Now we know that we humans have attempted to, not we humans, but human beings in general, have attempted to fill that void with many things, and religion is one of the chief things that they've tried to use to fill that void that was created in the human heart. But they've also tried filling it with prestige and popularity and power and pleasure. But none of that can fill the void in the human heart that is left when God is not considered. And sadly, whether we who are God's people intended to do it or not, many times we have impressed upon our children that it's so important to have some of these things like money and prestige and power and, and a feeling of importance in our lives. And because of that, young people, and some of them saved young people, have sought these things and they've begun to look at life from a very humanistic viewpoint. And you know what? They'll come to the same conclusion that Solomon did. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And they may question, and I've heard people ask these questions. What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why did God put us here? What is the purpose of our being on this planet? Now listen, young people today especially are looking for a purpose for their lives. They want to find something, a reason for their existence. And when they cannot find it, many times they'll turn to pleasure. And when pleasure and power and prestige don't fill that void and help them find a purpose in their lives, you know what many times they'll do? They'll turn to alcohol, other drugs, fornication. And by the way, note this, that sin is pleasurable. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25 tells us that. Where does it tell us that? How does it tell us that, preacher? Because it tells us that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And in fact, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. God does not deny that sin is pleasurable to the flesh. He says it just doesn't last. You've got to have more sin. You've got to have more intense sin in order to keep pleasing the flesh. And so when these things all run out and the flesh is no longer pleasured, sadly many people, and many of them young people, decide I will just end it. I've heard three times this week calls for people planning to commit suicide. One of them was on an overpass over the interstate wanting to jump off. He said, just, I'm tired of living. And there have been at least two others, and I'm sure there are many others that I haven't heard of people just deciding, I don't want to live anymore. Why? Because they've looked at life from a human standpoint, from a humanistic standpoint, and said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, it is useless. But 
when life is viewed from God's perspective. When you look at it from the perspective of the Word of God, you know there's a God in heaven. You know that Jesus came and died on the cross that we can have life and we do have life and we have the, the hope, the glad expectation of spending an eternity with Him. I tell you what, life takes on meaning then, doesn't it? Amen. Folks, I know why I'm here. Now I know this, that if just being saved was all there was to it, the moment I was saved, God could have taken me out of here and taken me to be with him. But he left me here for a reason. He left you here for a reason. And that is that we would be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a reason the book of Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And I've heard a lot of people say, oh, that means when he gets up in his 40s and 50s, he'll stay true to it. No, that word old, some say, has the idea of when whiskers begin to appear on the chin. And for a young boy, that's in his early teenage years, isn't it? You train a child the way he should go. Do you realize that a child's character and personality is 95% formed by the time they're six years old? That's why it's so important to teach these little ones the Word of God and teach them on their level something that they can understand about the Word of God and that Jesus has come and has died for them. Unfortunately, some parents wait 16 years and 160 pounds too late to start trying to train their child in the way they should go. Well, we're going to look at this book. and First of all, we're going to look at the approach of this book. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is contrasting the self-centered lifestyle to a God-centered lifestyle. He's talking about a world that is filled with vanity. It is filled with frustration. It is filled with futility as he views it under the sun. As he views it just in the flesh. He's looking at a world where the center of everybody's world is I, me, my, because that's the way the flesh looks at it. Who's number one in your world? Well, I am. But see, from the God-centered viewpoint, who's the number one in your world? It ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ and serving him and doing his will. So in this world that does not want to be God-centered and God-guided, Frustration begins to set in. Let me ask a question or two. Can purpose for life be found in money? Obvious answer, no. Because what happens if the money goes, so does the purpose, right? Can purpose in life be found in owning much property and in having things? Can it be found in achieving fame and popularity and, and great fortunes? Can purpose in life be found in intelligence and philosophy? No, that's what Solomon is going to say. And I know that mere religious observance, you get what I said, mere religious observance cannot give purpose to life. If it could, all the churches in this town, true churches and otherwise, would be filled up today if mere religious activity could give purpose to life. Some seek to worship nature. Can that give purpose to your life? Well, it's good that you want to, or you may want to protect nature, and that sort of thing, but it really doesn't give full purpose to life. One Jewish writer described life from this humanistic standpoint this way. He said, life is a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. He just, life is miserable, he said. There's no point, there's no purpose to it. 
So after examining the approach of the book, we're going to look at the author of the book. I said we'd talk about Solomon in just a moment. He refers to himself in three ways, the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. That's obviously Solomon. There are some who have debated that this was Solomon, but I believe it was Solomon, and I believe it's very clear that it's Solomon. Let me just add this also. The book of Ecclesiastes, the name Ecclesiastes, comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because the word Ecclesiastes comes from ecclesia. Now, what is ecclesia? It's a called out assembly, isn't it? That's what this church is. This church is an ecclesia. It's an assembly that God has called out and that God has put together. And so the idea behind Ecclesiastes and the idea of the word preacher, the, the word preacher literally is the word convener. It talks about somebody who calls a group of people together to address the group of people about some issue. And Solomon then is going to call people together. In this book, he's calling us together to share with us what he has learned of life. Now, it's believed that Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon in his younger years. When he was walking close to the Lord, when he was faithfully serving the Lord, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in his later years after he got away from the Lord for a period of time. We're going to talk about what he has done in his life because he claims and he did have great wealth and great wisdom as King Solomon. In fact, Queen of Sheba came from a long way away just to see this man Solomon. But I want you to turn, if you will, over to the book of 1 Kings for just a moment. 1 Kings, the third chapter, we're going to see God and Solomon having a conversation. In 1 Kings chapter 3 and in verse 5, look what God asked him. How would you like for God to ask you this? In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Blank check. Solomon, what do you want? What do you want me to give to you? And then we see in verse 9 how humble Solomon was. He says, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? You see the humility there? God says, What do you want? And Solomon could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power, but Solomon says, Lord, I want wisdom. He's very humble. He has become king. And he looks out over the people of God and he says, there's no way that I can lead these people, Lord, without your wisdom. And by the way, I'm just going to mention right here, every true God-called preacher in the world needs to have that kind of humility. Lord, I cannot lead your people without your wisdom and so Solomon's very humble. And so we get down to verse 12. And God says, Behold, I've done according to thy words. Lo, I've given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that thou was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I've also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. God says, I'm not going to only make you wise, son. I'm going to make you wealthy. And I'm going to bring you honor. I said the Queen of Sheba came from a long distance to view Solomon's wisdom, hear his wisdom, and view his wealth. And so God said, I'm going to make you a king like no other king ever has been before. But let's go back to the first three verses of this third chapter of 1 Kings. 
And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. What did Solomon do? To make affinity means to, the particular word that's translated affinity means to arrange a marriage. Our English word means to have a feeling of closeness and understanding that someone has for another person because you have something in common. And what did Solomon and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, have in common? They had Pharaoh's daughter in common. Solomon took her for wife. He brought her into the nation of Israel. And so Pharaoh's not going to attack, is he? I mean, if my daughter was married to a king and I wouldn't go attack his nation because of danger to her. And that's what happened. Solomon expanded the borders of Israel to the greatest point that they ever had been. And up until this day, they've not been expanded farther, ever had been expanded. Now, how did he do it? Well, just simply, he married the daughters of the pagan kings roundabout. He knew there would be no war because of marrying the daughters. But there was a danger in it also. You know what the danger was? All of these pagan kings and their daughters were idol worshipers. Solomon not only made provision for them to worship their idols, Solomon got caught up in the idol worship also. There's a reason I encourage Christian young people to look for a mate among Christian young people. You understand? You say, oh, but he's, he's not saved, but... I'll lead him to the Lord after we're saved. She's not saved. I'll lead her to the Lord after we're saved. Well, you may. And more likely you may not. And more likely you will be drawn away from a faithful service of the Lord. So all of these marriages that Solomon is making, they're, they're motivated by politics. That's all they're motivated by. And again, it's alliances with the pagan nations. Those who do not believe in God. Those who don't know God. And we see this happen so often. As God blessed Solomon, and as Solomon grew and his fame grew, he forgot about his humble beginnings back there when he said, Lord, I just need some wisdom to be able to rule your people. His hearts turned away from God. His hearts turned to idols. His hearts turned to the false gods that his pagan wives had taken. And the longer he reigned, the colder his heart grew toward God. We've seen it happen to people. We've seen God bless people. And soon they forget that it's God blessing them. And they start to think, I've done this all myself. And so they turn away from God. And they just quit serving God. Many of the things that Solomon did seemed to bring glory to Israel. But really they were bringing glory to Solomon. And they were going against the word of God. You know, that sounds like our nation today. I fully believe with all of my heart that God birthed this nation, folks. I believe God made it possible for this nation to be established because he in his foreknowledge knew that the word of God could go out from here. The word of God would have freedom here that we could send missionaries throughout the world and the word of God would be spread out in the world because of the liberty that we have and the freedom that we have in this nation. But let me tell you what's happening. You know what's happening. Christianity is under attack. The word of God's under attack. I saw something just this morning. I told Joni, I said, well, I guess you can't even talk about the crucifixion on Facebook anymore. Our nephew had, our niece's husband, that's a nephew, right? 
uh, had posted a picture and it was about somebody getting the, the vaccine and it said, you trust this, showed a needle going in the arm and the other picture was what was supposed to be the hand of Jesus with a spike through it more than this. And when it came up, it said, this is a graphic picture. You may not want to look at it. So he couldn't even show the crucifixion, the hand, just the hand of the crucified Jesus on Facebook, folks. I believe God birthed this nation. I know that God has blessed this nation. We couldn't be where we are. We couldn't be what we are as a nation today had God not blessed us. But you know what's happened in America? We have forgotten our humble beginnings. We have forgotten how God put this nation together and how God has cared for us. And what has happened is in America, we've intermarried with a pagan world. And we want to be friends with and we want to be pleasing to a pagan world. And we today are going in a direction that is completely opposite of God and God's word. It's the same story over and over, just as Solomon. You know, we claim in America that we oppose Sexual abuse, don't we? You can say yes to that, we do. We're supposed to. It's wrong. But you know what one of the highest grossing industries in this nation is? The pornography industry. Now, I'm convinced that pornography plays a great deal in sexual abuse. And so we, we say one thing and we do something else altogether. We have had, or may even still have today, a program called No Child Left Behind. And yet we've aborted 60 million babies in this nation. Hypocrisy, paganism, going away from God. And listen, the very same thing can happen to churches as well. God establish a church and bless that church and church starts to grow and suddenly we forget our humble beginnings. We forget how we labored, and I'm sure people labored, I know people labored for the sake of this church to put a church together, and God blessed the labor, and, and we began to grow. And even since we've moved here, God has blessed us, and we have grown. But if we're not careful, we'll turn from those humble beginnings and accept compromise, turn away from the truth, abandon the truth, and some do it all in the name of growth. But often it's growth that glorifies people and not growth that glorifies God. The Lord, the scripture says, added unto the church daily such as should be saved. But in none of these situations, no amount of money or authority can stop the coming of God's divine judgment when a nation turns away from God or when a church turns away from God. Amen. Solomon's latter years were miserable. You know why? God removed his blessings. Now, he left him on the throne. You know why God left Solomon on the throne? He would made a promise to David. God keeps his promises. And he's keeping a promise. Even though Solomon turned his back on God, went away from God, God kept his promise to maintain the throne in the son of David and in his descendants. I said, it's thought that he wrote Song of Solomon, Proverbs, early on. He wrote Ecclesiastes later on in life, near the end of his life. And it seems to be the kind of book where a person would write at the close of their life as they start reflecting on their life. He's looking back. And some suggested that Solomon writes not so much for our hearing, but he's having a debate with himself. What's best? Which is the best way to go? 
Now, right quickly in closing, I want to talk about the assertions of the book. Whether he's considering his wealth, or whether he's considering his wisdom, or whether he's considering the world about him as he writes this book, I said he comes to the same conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. You know what he's saying? Meaningless. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The word vanity. This is a short book. The word vanity is used 38 times in this book of Ecclesiastes as Solomon looks at life under the sun, not life under heaven or life under God. Vanity means emptiness, futility, vapor, that which vanishes quickly and leaves nothing behind. It talks about that which does not satisfy. It is pictured by a bubble, a soap bubble in the air that just pops and nothing's left. That's how Solomon saw life. It's a bubble. It's here and then it's gone and nothing is left. But we have to remember that Solomon is viewing life as one who is away from God, one who is out of fellowship with God, one who's not considering God in his thinking, in his life, in his works. He uses the phrase under the sun 29 times here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you know he's looking at life just on this earth and just in this flesh. And again, it's just a purely human perspective that he's viewing life. It's applying human wisdom and human knowledge and human experience to every situation that we encounter. I want to look at verse 3 for just a moment here in Ecclesiastes 1 and see what Solomon says. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? That word profit talks about advantage. It talks about gain. He looks at the problems and the puzzles of life. And he said, what advantage is there in living? His labor talks about wearisome labor, labor, toil to the point of exhaustion. And he's saying, why do you go and work? What's the use of it all? What's the purpose of it all? It reminds me of a verse in the book of Haggai, chapter one, verse six. This is a different situation, but God said to them, here's what's happening. It just seems like you're working, turn all this money, and you put your money in a bag that has holes in it. You labor, you work, you toil, and you turn around and there's nothing there. You know, I've read recently, because we're getting up there in years, I've read recently that most people 65 or older don't even have $1,000 in their savings account. You've worked all your life, you put money into Social Security and paid for or tried to pay for a home or a car or whatever, and you come to the end of your life and you look, and I don't even have a thousand dollars I can call my own. And if you look at it from a purely human viewpoint, folks, you'd have to say vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Amen. And that's where a lot of people are today. A lot of older people and a lot of young people. People in America once lived with the expectation, with the hope of some kind of happy future. And it seems today that so many live with just an expectation of more trouble, more problems, more difficulties, more taxes or whatever it may be. And so people are asking today, what 
is the purpose of life. But remember this, God, through the Holy Spirit, led Solomon to write this book of Ecclesiastes. There's a purpose in it. You say, why in the world would God lead Solomon to write a book so negative, a book like the book of Ecclesiastes? Because among other things, it reminds us no matter how close you've been to God, you can get away from God. You can reach the point that Solomon reached. All go back to 1 Kings. He's so humble. Lord, I need your wisdom. I can't lead your people without that wisdom. You come here to Ecclesiastes and he's saying, well, it's just all useless. It's all worthless. But it also reveals to us that if we're not careful, the outlook that can cloud your mind and my mind as children of God. I said a few moments ago, and I believe that Satan would just love to, he, he's, I think he's enjoying himself attacking our members. You know, it just seems like he's getting a thrill out of that. Amen. But I tell you what, he can't win. He can't win. We know that we're on the winning side. We need to remember that. But see that outlook, if we're not careful, even with Satan's attack, we can start saying, well, what, what's the use? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul talks about a man. If you read I'm going to give you his name in a moment. If you read Colossians, in the end of Colossians he's mentioned, he's called a fellow helper to the truth or something along that line. In the book of Philemon he's mentioned as helping the truth and working with Paul and them. And then in 2 Timothy 4.10 Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica. You can be a faithful servant of God and you can let Satan cloud your mind and you can come to the point where you just say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. G. Campbell Morgan, preacher of old time, wrote this about Solomon. He said, this man has been living through all these experiences under the sun, concerned with nothing above the sun until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life and there was something over the sun, and that is God. And it's only when we take account of that which is over the sun that we view things that are under the sun in their proper light. Our daily work may seem to be futile. It may seem to be boring. You may have a burdensome, boring job and it feels that way to you. But if you just look and see who's over the sun, who's above the sun, we can find strength for living every day, folks. You can get up and do that job. You can do what you need to do. You can witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody said this, said Jesus came to give life to our purpose and purpose to our life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And why does he say that? What does the rest of that verse say? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When we view life not under the sun, but over the sun, when we see it from a godly standpoint, instead of just a human earthly standpoint, folks, we'll see there's purpose to my life. God has me here for a reason. A man named C.T. Studd wrote a poem. I'm not going to read the whole poem, just one verse out of it. And the poem is titled this, Only One Life, will soon be past. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each 
with its days I must fulfill living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen. Solomon was the ideal person to write this book. I know he was because God chose him. But he possessed wealth and he possessed wisdom. And yet he found out the very thing that Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, when Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now the idea of that is this. What does it matter if you become a multi-billionaire and you have to sacrifice your life lived for Christ to become a multi-billionaire? We live, most of us, day to day depending upon the Lord. You may live paycheck to paycheck, but I tell you what, God supplies the paycheck. We need to accept Solomon's conclusions at the end of things and avoid the heartache and the pain of viewing life under the sun. Doesn't matter how much. Now, I believe in education. I believe you ought to get a good education. We've got some young people in here. Get a good education. Make good grades. Learn what you need to learn. Stuff that you're taught in school that's foreign to the Word of God, such as evolution. Learn what you need to give back on a test to pass that test and then forget it. That's what I told my children. That's what I tell you. But get you a good education. You need a good education in this world today. But education and wealth and social prestige without God is useless. Amen. It's just vanity. And a person is only chasing the wind if they expect to find satisfaction and personal fulfillment in the things of this world. Just think about Solomon. He had everything. Richest man, wisest man, wisest king that had ever lived. And still in living for all that he had, what did he say? Life is empty. Lord willing, I'm going to share some thoughts with you next time of what some of the folks who've had it all had to say at the end of life. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want to preach next Sunday's sermon if I have it ready next Sunday today. But just think about and read about what some who've been so wealthy, who thought wealth was going to satisfy them, what they had to say. When we start living for the world instead of living for God, we're looking at life from the wrong perspective. We're looking at it under the sun instead of above the sun. And you know what wrong vision will cause you to do? It'll make you adopt the wrong values. And it'll cause you to stop living for eternity. And the result is disappointment and defeat. I'm going to close this first message from Ecclesiastes, the same way I intend, you know, I'm not that far ahead in preparing, but in the same way that I intend to close the final message from this book of Ecclesiastes, and it's over in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, here's how Solomon ended the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. I could just stop right there, but I'm going to read on. For this is the whole duty of man for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Solomon, who had it all, wisdom, power, wealth, anything that people today could imagine that they want. And he came to the end of his life and he said, here's what you need to do. Fear God and obey him. Just fear God and obey him. Because without that, everything else, all those other things that he said, he said, it's just vanity. Amen. So many of God's people today
are living for things that when they get into eternity, they're not going to amount to a hill of beans. In fact, by a year from now, they won't amount to a hill of beans. You know, it's football season. People talk about this team and that team and they think about the Super Bowl. I can't even remember who was in last year's Super Bowl. That's how important it is, see. It doesn't matter because what matters is what's done for God, what's done for Christ.